Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me as always is Vincent M. Wales, and attention listeners, that's you. We are looking for suggestions. What topics or experts would you like to hear about? All you have to do is email show at psychcentral.com and let us know. With us this week is the author of the upcoming book, Owning Bipolar, How Patients and Families Can Take Control of Bipolar Disorder. Please join me in welcoming Michael Pipich to the show. Hi, Michael. Hi, Vincent and Gabe. Thanks very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we are very glad to have you on the show. As our listeners know, I live with bipolar disorder and you know, Vin works with me. So bipolar disorder is something, you know, that, that means a lot to our working relationship. So for kind of the purposes of the rest of this show, I will be the bipolar guy and Vin will be family. That should work out just fine. And you, of course, will be the psychotherapist. So talk to us about this book. How did it come about? Why did you write it? I mean, there's there's a lot of bipolar books floating around, as I'm sure you know. What makes yours different? It really started several years ago when I was being referred several patients from a local inpatient psychiatric facility. I practice in Denver, Colorado. And over a period of time, working with those individuals, it occurred to me that particularly their family members, but patients themselves, didn't really understand exactly what bipolar was all about and what was required for long-term care, both for the patient, the individual with, with bipolar disorder, and the family members around that individual. And as I discovered that, I created a community-based program to help patients and families. And from there, I kind of dove into the research and recognized that many people go through years of suffering with bipolar without a correct diagnosis or a correct ongoing treatment. So as I build those programs and and, uh, talk to other clinicians, from that, I saw the need to really nail down a guide for patients and families so that they can take responsibility and understand what that disorder is all about for long-term success. And that's how that book, Owning Bipolar, came about. As I know firsthand, and as a lot of our listeners know from listening to to me and because of their own journeys, bipolar disorder is a, it's, it's a massive and incredibly misunderstood illness. Now, I've, I've explained it before from a layman's perspective, but can you tell our audience the definition of bipolar disorder from a clinical perspective? Sure. Bipolar disorder is a particular type of mood disorder. And that's very important just to start with because it is not the same thing as a personality disorder, for example. And as a mood disorder, it's very distinct from something like major depressions that can come and go in a person's life without anything additional that we identify as manic behaviors and so forth. And even perhaps more importantly, is to understand that bipolar disorder is genetically based. In other words, it's hereditary, it's coded in a person's DNA, it's passed down through family lines, and it's nobody's fault that you have this genetic uh, foundation of uh, this particular kind of mental illness or mental disorder. But what will eventually happen in people that have this genetic predisposition, either through adolescence or through, in the case of women who have a postpartum onset, in other words, either during or following 
uh, pregnancy, their hormones shift, and any number of things can occur in a person's life, either through hormonal shifts or through drug abuse and so forth, that can be catalysts for bipolar disorder and bring out the disorder where the person then begins to suffer some degree of mood swings from a manic side, if you will, where their behavior is very excited, uh, very upbeat, uh, they feel tremendous energy, they feel very creative and so forth, to swings in a, in a very different direction where they feel dark and depressed, that life has no flavor, no meaning, and there's a, a profound sense of hopelessness. And one of the most important things to understand about bipolar disorder is that it is very lethal mental illness in the sense that, unfortunately, many people take their own lives as a result of bipolar disorder, particularly because they can go many years without being accurately diagnosed, and as a result, suffer very intense suicidal feelings and thoughts. The American Psychiatric Association, in fact, believes that about one-fourth of all deaths by suicide is the result of bipolar disorder. So it is a very, unfortunately, prevalent, more than we understand, type of mental disorder in society today. But it's very treatable, and that's the good news, that if we understand what it is and understand as a community how to face bipolar disorder, we can save many, many lives. Everybody with a bipolar diagnosis has some commonalities. Can you speak to that a little bit without, of course, you know, just telling people, hey, go out and do X and you'll be well? There are common things. And as I mentioned, it is a genetic disorder, which means it influences how the brain processes emotions and regulates those emotions through the lifespan. And when there is a particular catalyst, and I think the most common one would be adolescence and hormonal changes that everybody goes through at that stage in life, the brain then has difficulty, if you will, to regulate that compared to how it may handle it in most other individuals. So for that reason, I say that bipolar medications that are specific to stabilizing mood and helping the brain, if you will, to regulate those emotions on a regular basis is really, really necessary. And I realize that that may be difficult for some people to accept. And I certainly work with people who struggle with the concept of having to take medication, particularly if they have to take it for the rest of their lives. But knowing that these medications are available and they're typically effective for mood stabilization is really, really important. And uh, to sort of mess with that and look for radical alternatives right off the bat without really trying the medications that have been researched and shown to be effective would be a wrong course. So it starts with medications, of course, but it doesn't end there. There has to be involved, I think, for any individual, and again, family around that individual as well, a coherent, consistent therapy plan. And I developed and teach and work on a three-phase approach to bipolar therapy that helps that person through the stabilization process, but also helps them to thrive in what I describe as the final phase of the post-stabilization phase, so that they understand that any changes that they've had to go through as a result of medications and that initial stabilization experience that they have is okay to go through and work through and discover within themselves that true person aside from those bipolar mood swings. So there are individual differences to take into account, but you're also right to suggest that, that there are common issues that need to be addressed in therapy going forward for anyone who's dealing with bipolar treatment. 
One of the things that comes up a, a lot in the bipolar community is that mania is awesome. It, it, it gets talked about a lot. I'm so creative when I'm manic. I, I make the best fill in the blank when I'm manic. It's so fun when I'm manic. Now, I am a rebel and I think that mania is extraordinarily dangerous. I, I think that it, it leads to a lot of pain and suffering. And I imagine that the research, in fact, I know that the research backs me up on this. Mania is extremely dangerous. Can you speak to that from a clinical perspective? Well, I happen to agree with your perspective on it. And um, mania has um, inevitably certain consequences. And in my practice, I often talk with people, particularly in their early or pre-stabilization phase about the good aspects. And I put quotation marks around that, okay? Because they feel good, obviously, when they're in a very euphoric type of manic state. They may not in the dysphoric manic, where they're irritable and angry and, and may have outbursts. But typically, people look at their mania as something that's good because it does make them feel energetic and alive. And it's also very often perceived to be an offset to depression and that they've experienced depression. Chances are they have. Comparing the two, there's just no comparison. Mania wins all the time. So it's important to break down certain parts of mania to remind them that, you know, there are certain aspects to it that can be very destructive like spending sprees or certain sexual indiscretions or whatever they may imbibe in and engage in. And certainly drug abuse is big as well with many people with bipolar. And that these can have very destructive components. So while they may feel very energetic and alive, there is inevitably a certain crash that goes along with mania. And for that reason, it's important to be preemptive in care. In other words, treat it while it may not be as bad as it inevitably will become. One thing I think that's important to bear in mind is that no person with bipolar disorder has to abandon their creative process. But what they can find in treatment is a new way to organize themselves so that they can have a consistent and fruitful creative life. And that's what really bipolar therapy is ultimately all about. So given how you've described bipolar with the, with the mania and the depression, why then is it so frequently misdiagnosed? I think, first of all, bipolar disorder is a very, at least the, the manic aspect of it, can be very stealthy in a person's life. And particularly when it comes to bipolar 2, bipolar 1 is marked by at least one episode of mania, bipolar 2, with a history of hypomania and depression. Hypomania is manic symptoms, but typically of shorter duration and usually by themselves fewer consequences but they can be devastating in the person's life as well. So very often when somebody comes to treatment initially, they may come for a variety of reasons that don't immediately show a history of mania. They may be depressed or had a recent uh, depression. They may have marital issues. They may have substance abuse issues and so forth that are more salient, more kind of predominant in that picture. And so what can happen is that a clinician can start to talk and address those issues, which is not inappropriate, it's the right thing to do, but miss perhaps a more detailed and in-depth personal mental health history. And one of the things that I think is not shown enough, unfortunately, is a family history, because if it's a genetic disorder, then you would expect that people in that person's family line to have, including their own parents or grandparents, to have bipolar mood swings or some evidence of mental illness or cyclical depression or something like that going on in their family history. 
So if you take all of these pieces of evidence together, so to speak, it may be more suggestive and lead that therapist or doctor to say, hey, do you know, have you ever had periods where you felt really up, really active, maybe hyperactive? And, you know, when you start inquiring about these things, very often people will start to talk about those periods where they feel really good, or maybe they've had some experience with bipolar consequences that you kind of look into. Well, yeah, there was a time when I got a credit card and I went out and spent $10,000 and boy, I'll never do that again. But then you can acquire, you can inquire a little bit about what were they feeling around that time that can give you some evidence. And very often that bipolar mania can be misdiagnosed as something like ADHD or personality disorder like narcissistic or borderline personality. And again, we have to really kind of do more in-depth work to really understand what that's all about. And then one big issue from sort of the patient and family side, if you will, is denial. Denial is, is huge when it comes to bipolar disorder, much in the way it is in substance abuse and addictions of all kinds. We see that very similarly. So people will often talk about some of the problems associated with bipolar, either caused or made worse by bipolar, like their relationship problems, but may not give the full information about you know those bipolar mood swings that leads us to that kind of conclusive diagnosis and treatment plan. About two-thirds of all people with bipolar disorder have been misdiagnosed in their lives. So that's a lot of people that have been waiting sometimes years and years before they're correctly diagnosed, if at all. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face session. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash psychcentral and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. Betterhelp.com forward slash psychcentral. So obviously we understand what bipolar disorder is. We, we know that it's, it's an illness and it's one that needs to be taken seriously. And you have a treatment modality for it. Now I understand that it's, there's three parts to your treatment. Can you explain the first step, please? Just for understanding, the three phases are pre-stabilization, stabilization, and post-stabilization. So it's around that stabilization process that's really featured by the right medications. But that first phase that you ask about, the pre-stabilization phase, is usually marked by a particular crisis. And that crisis is either caused by or made worse by bipolar disorder. Just as we talked about that very common presentation to outpatient therapy, or it may be somebody who has to be hospitalized, either because of suicide attempt or some sort of psychotic aspect to a manic episode. So something has created a crisis in that person's life. And that's where the assessment process really has to take hold to understand that person is suffering from bipolar disorder. So an objective in that pre-stabilization phase is to begin the process of assessment to educate family on what bipolar disorder is and what ultimately it means to own bipolar disorder, which we can talk about as we go forward. Um, But once that uh, assessment has gone forward, then it's important to kind of really be in a symptom-based mode. In other words, talk about the particular parts of bipolar disorder. You can certainly talk about the diagnosis, but what I try to do in treatment 
and I try to help other people to think about and discuss within their family is to talk about the parts of it, the symptoms of it, rather than just saying, hey, you have bipolar disorder. It's important to say, hey, you have these certain symptoms, these certain problem areas that while you may feel good in one sense or you want to protect one part of this, these other parts are creating problems. And so it's a problem or symptom-based approach in that first phase. And as we go forward, we begin to lace those symptoms together into a more identifiable problem or process for that individual to kind of come through that denial phase more into acceptance to say, hey, yeah, I know I feel great when I'm on a bipolar high or a manic high, but I have to understand that that comes with some baggage and that's that baggage that I have to really focus in on. So the second step you said is stabilization. And how do we know when somebody has truly reached stabilization and, and what goes on in, in your process then? So as you move from pre-stabilization to that stabilization, that second phase, we're really focusing a lot on both the, the medications and talking about medications and introducing the patient and the family to what it means to be on mood stabilizing medications and talk about whatever their fears or concerns are around that. And I can tell you, everybody has fears and concerns to one degree or another. So we have an honest, collaborative kind of conversation about medications to move them into that stabilization phase. And once they're and they start that, those trials and medications, sometimes people are very successful right off the bat, but as you probably know, a lot of people aren't. And, and it requires, I try not to say trial and error, I call it trial and experimentation because error sounds a little scary. So we're going to try things. We're going to experiment with things a little bit, but we know that ultimately we're going to find the right combination if we can exercise our knowledge and our patience uh, through that process. But it's not just about stabilization for the individual. It's about stabilizing the family too. Very often spouses of people with bipolar disorder will talk about how they feel kind of left behind in the process. You know, they suffered so much in terms of the consequences of bipolar disorder. And then their loved one goes into treatment and gets all this attention. And sometimes they feel like they're not getting enough attention for the pain they went through. And they want to slow that down a little bit and, and, and be heard and be understood. Or parents have lots of questions when they have a bipolar child. Caregivers have a lot of stress and fatigue and trying to understand what it is they're dealing with sometimes from many miles away. So all of these individuals also go through a certain stabilization process, and that's when education and therapy can be very useful for them and bring together a collaborative approach with a treatment team who's open to these concepts and open to these ideas and are willing to work together on them. And that is generally the ob objective of that second phase. So in phase three, post-stabilization, we are, I'm assuming that means that both the individual and the family have reached a point where things are routine, maybe? Well, post-stabilization has a couple of very important features to it. First of all, we understand that symptoms become more uh, settled, more stable in themselves, and that that person is feeling like uh, side effects, if any, are under good control. Uh, medications often switch from a more intense kind of level because that person may be very manic or very depressed. And so we kind of address those uh, immediately and urgently. But then medications tend to be titrated away a little bit from that intense initial part towards a more maintenance schedule. And that person feels like those medications are now doing their job reasonably. And they may be changed through the course of the person's life uh, one way or another, but more or less those medications are set for long-term maintenance. And 
that's the medical side of it. Every other aspect is about helping that person to deal with, first of all, the change in their sense of who they are and their personal identity. Because we believe that bipolar disorder is genetic and it's lifelong, it's been in that person's life since day one. Even though maybe those symptoms haven't been recognizable till later, they have seen themselves through that prism of extreme mood events in their life. And other people have seen them that way as well. So that stabilized person now has a new identity to adapt to, in a sense. And they're discovering who they are, that real person, and how they really feel about themselves and the world around them, and how certain circumstances, either old ones or new ones, their reactions may be different. And they have to get used to that. And the people around them do as well. So that post-stabilization phase is really, really important for the individual and for the family members to work through and very often struggle through who that real person is and recognize that bipolar disorder may not be the center of their life, but it's still a part of their life going forward. And Gabe, I'm sure you're familiar with this to one extent or another, that people around that bipolar person will always wonder if they get really excited about something or they're really upset about something or really angry about something. Um, it, you know, well into that post-stabilization phase, they can still go, hey, is he still on his meds? Did he get off his meds? Or, you know, he seems way too happy about this, you know? And, yeah, and that you, can... You're not wrong. Yeah, and that can really <laughs> irritate that individual, I would imagine, right? You are right, though. It, it's a complete double-edged sword. On one hand, I'm glad that my family has learned so much about the illness that they can recommend that these could possibly be early warning signs. On the other hand... Every time I'm angry, I, I would like people not to wonder if this is the end because, you know, I want to have normal emotions. So you're you're absolutely right. It, it's they love me, but they're also so worried that it gets in the way. So what I try to do in those situations is to help the patient and family members learn and practice what I call the grand bargain. So each person holds up one end of the bargain going forward. So for the family member, it's basically I won't think everything about you is bipolar disorder if I know you're keeping your bipolar disease under control. And then for the person with bipolar, it's, you know, I'll always let you keep updated about my disease as long as you don't think everything about me is bipolar disorder. So if we have that bargain in place and we, we learn to practice it and exercise it, then it's okay to talk about these things. It shouldn't be something that people should be afraid to bring up. Like you mentioned, it is about loving and caring and being concerned. And family members don't forget what that's like when, you know, before that stabilization occurred. But we have to kind of give some room for that individual to grow into who they are meant to be. And if we have an ongoing communication about it, we don't have to talk about it all the time. We just know that we're keeping each other informed in kind of an ongoing fluid way that is about ultimately getting to know what a full, healthy, emotional life is all about. And it's also important, I think, for family members to understand that that bipolar person may never become the person you want them to be. I mean, that's part of having a family member anyway. I mean, that's more typical, isn't it? That all our family members are not exactly who they want. we want them to be at any given time, right? We want to form them in our own image and, and do what we tell them to do, right? Part of, again, a healthy life is about experiencing a range of emotions and learning how to deal with that. So if a family member does feel like something might be getting a bit out of hand during that post-stabilization phase, if you're practicing the grand bargain, it's okay to say, hey, you know what? You've been doing really good lately, but I noticed that you're really stressed out lately. Can you tell me what's going on? 
And if you just kind of say, hey, can you tell me what's going on? You know, it opens up the possibility of discussion. Now, if the person with bipolar says, you know, work has been really stressful or our school is, you know, I got all these deadlines at school and I'm, I'm behind. I don't know what, what's going to happen. Then we have something to talk about that's real life, you know, and maybe that would include, hey, you know, if this is really stressful, maybe you need more sessions with your therapist right now just to get through this time in your life. Or if it is upsetting you and you can't sleep, maybe it's okay to talk to your doctor about how your medications may be affecting this. So we're having a, an ongoing discussion that respects each other and that grand bargain that we started. And as that person kind of goes through whatever sort of crisis they may be going through that's kind of aggravating, either those kind of more typical emotions or maybe aggravating the disorder itself, it's, it's again, an open dialogue, it's collaborative, and it helps that person ultimately to stay on course with what they need to do going forward in their treatment. So that brings up one thing. We see this too often, is that people who get to that point where they're in maintenance, as you say, but then they decide, hey, I'm doing great. I don't need these pills anymore. This is something that we need to get through people's heads, I think, that, you know, this is a lifelong condition and, and you will need these pills. But we, we hear all the time about people going off their meds and having to start all over again almost. And is this something that you address in your in your program? I absolutely. Because it's so common. Yes, yes, absolutely address it. Uh, this is part of what it is to have bipolar disorder. Just like I talked about denial as an expected part of that pre-stabilization phase, what the two of you have brought up is a typical feature of post-stabilization. So as a person moves into that phase of care, I absolutely talk to them about their eventual inevitable desire to get off medication. And, and I introduce it again as part of what it is to manage bipolar in your life. It doesn't make you bad because you've had thoughts about getting off your medication. It makes you quite typical, if you will, uh, in the process. And what I, what I usually do for my patients is, is I tell them, look, uh, you're going to think about it. doesn't mean you're going to necessarily get, get off of them, but you're going to think about it at some point or another. And, it, and if and when you do, let me know. If you're currently in therapy, bring it up. If for some reason, you know, we haven't had sessions in a while or whatever, give me a call. Here's my phone number. Always call me when you feel this way, because chances are something else is coming up in your life that needs to be discussed beyond medications itself. Because there's a particular reason why at some point you had that thought. It is inevitable, but how you put it on your personal timeline says something about what you're dealing with in your life. And I want to talk about that too, before you make that decision of whether or not you're going to go off your meds. Now, through all of the thorough education they've had up to the point, they certainly know what the research is, and they certainly know my position with regard to having medications and being on them through the lifespan. But I want to have an open dialogue about what brought them to that particular point whenever they arrive at that point, that they stay in communication with their therapy team, their treatment team, and the people who love them and care for them, not to be in a judgmental way, not to say, hey, you better not do this or else, but to open up a dialogue about what might be going on in their life right now that's sort of aggravating that thought, if you will. So you've walked us through the three steps, and now you, we've got a person that, that, is, that is out there living their life. What does their life look like now that, that they, their family, everybody's made it? What is the prognosis for somebody with bipolar disorder to lead a relatively normal life? That's the question that gives me an opportunity to give everybody good news. The good news is that bipolar disorder is a very manageable 
disease, illness. And it is that, in my opinion. And a lot of people have problems with those words, and I get that. So I try to be careful with that. And it's not meant to, you know, at all to to uh, stigmatize it. It's to help people to understand that this is something that I have, just like I could have any kind of medical disorder that's not psychiatric in, in nature, but something that I have to attend to. And I can live a long and happy and successful life on my terms, not on the terms of bipolar disorder, not on the terms of, of a genetic brain disease that, that puts me on a disadvantage of dealing with emotions on a day-to-day basis. With that ability to have stability in my life, I can preserve and enhance the relationships around me, either my current ones or new ones that I can look forward to in my life. And, and that individual can go forth and be artistic or quirky or sexy or funny or private or introverted or extroverted or whatever they're meant to be in their life, but they can discover that person that they're meant to be separate and apart from bipolar disorder. And that's really the exciting part. And then I think it also gives people an opportunity, much in the way that people like yourself are interested in helping other people, it gives people who have bipolar disorder and suffering in life an opportunity to help others and to recognize when bipolar or any kind of mental illness may be going on in somebody around them, either a coworker or a neighbor or another future family member or loved one, that they can recognize that and help that person walk through their pain and lead them to a positive treatment experience so they can benefit and grow as well. So it's not just about what you do for yourself, it's ultimately how you pay that forward to others and create just a stronger community around us, which, you know, I'm very excited about this show does that and many other opportunities are available for people to not feel alone. And when you've gone through treatment, if you've gone through the the suffering and the challenges and the bumps in the road, you have an opportunity to help other people. and, And there's nothing better than that. Really appreciate that. Thank you so much for being on our show, Michael. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. Psychcentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psych Central is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at GabeHoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counsellor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at VincentMWales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. 
One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.